podcast one production. Leading entrepreneurs often say you only need three people to run a successful startup. A hipster, a hacker, and a hustler. A hipster to keep it cool, a hustler to bring in the cash, and a hacker to write the code. The first two are easy to find. The third, not so much. Finding a tech partner to help you build your website is one of, if not the most important relationship you'll have in your startup career. So how do you go about choosing a web developer that's right for you and your business? I'm Bernadette Schwert, and this is How to Build an Online Business. So where do you go to find a good web developer? What questions do you ask them? And how do you hold them accountable if you don't like what you get? One man who holds the answers to all this and more is Jim Stewart from Stewart Media, a web guru and the go-to tech specialist for many of Australia's top online businesses. In this episode, he gives us the inside story on how you can choose the best website developer for your business so that you get it right the first time. What are the top three things a startup business owner needs to do in order to get their website built off to a great start? Well, first of all, they need to understand who their target market is. Who's that? Who is that buyer persona? Who is that audience? And what sort of things do they like? What sort of things do they connect with? Um, what sort of sites are they already frequenting? That'll give you an idea of the sorts of site you might want to be. Uh, the other thing is you've got to have a, a strong plan. Understand what you want that user to do when you get there. One of the biggest mistakes that website owners make is that they don't have a strong, what we call a call to action. What are you trying to do? Are you trying to sell something? Are you trying to get an email address? What is it that you want this visitor to do when they get there? That's so important. And the, the third thing that I would say is, is so, so important to do is be on a platform that is quite popular. So when someone might, a web developer might say to you, oh, we've got our own type of platform that we use, it's proprietary and all these other things, just be careful because the total cost of ownership, it's like buying, you know, a, a designer car that only one manufacturer ever, you know, makes. And then the cost of repairing that is going to be higher and all those sorts of things. So popular platforms like WordPress, these sorts of things, uh, it's great to be on something like that. Let's say I'm a startup and I hear all these types of platforms being sprouted mm. at me, you know, the WordPress and Drupal and Joomla. Mm. But let's maybe take a step back and think, what are the types of functionalities open to me mm. as a startup operator? Because I may not even know what I want my website to do. Yeah, exactly. So can you throw at me some classic sort of functionalities that we might be thinking about? Yeah, so it, it always takes, you always take it back to the user. What's the user experience? What do you want this user to do? So in what we call, say, a lead generation site, which is someone that isn't actually selling anything through the site, but the site is purely there to promote who they are in their business. You want to understand, do you want that user to call you? Is that what you want them to do? Then make sure it's easy for you to be called. So one simple technique in that is on the mobile version of your website, make sure the phone numbers on the website are clickable. So I can just click with my thumb on my phone and ring you straight away. So just simple ideas like that. Um, just things like... Um, 
you know, e-commerce, if you're a retailer or if you're even a, um, you just maybe even only have one product, you can set up a website with just one product. Um, and you don't have to set up an expensive website if you only want to sell one product, if it's, you know, just one thing that you do. Um, so transacting through the website, you know, that's where the main focus is with most businesses now. It's e-commerce. It's selling things through the website. So the sorts of things that you you want to do is just make sure that the, when that user comes to that site, they can get to that piece of information or they can perform that action that you want them to as easily and as quickly as possible. I have to ask the question, Jim, how do you know what your customers want before you've even got a customer? Well, I mean, that comes down to your basic market research, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, the different sorts of businesses will have um, different things that they need to provide to their customers. So, for instance, yourself, a public speaker, you know, do they want to see a show reel? Is that what they're doing? What are they doing when they come to the website? So, you've got to start to ask yourself those questions. What are they typically looking for? Uh, with people like you, it might be a show reel, but with a retail site, I just want to buy that product now, quickly. You know, it's got to be fast. So... The, the one thing that you need to understand with with your audience is is why are they at your site? And chances are they're not there so you can educate them. They might be if you're a blogger, but if you're a retailer, you may not need to try to educate them about your product or give them all the new specials that you might have. They may not be interested in that. And the other way that you can then look at measuring if you're delivering the right information to the users is you can do a things called heat mapping, which allows you to see how the users are moving around your site and the sorts of things that they're clicking on. And one of the the big problems we find with a lot of sites is that the users have to keep scrolling to find what they're looking for, which means the stuff at the top of the page isn't what they're looking for. And the only way you'll be able to see that is if you do things like heat mapping and those sorts of things. What sorts of things do we need on our website in order to make them work? What most people like to see these days is some sort of about us. They want to see an address. They want to know who's behind this site. So have that. An easy way to just contact the, the, the owners. You'd be surprised how many sites have come across where that's quite difficult. And there was a move, you know, a few years back where uh, large organisations were trying to stop people ringing them by putting all the information on their website. Well, now we're sort of seeing a swing back to that. Hey, we've got people on the end of the phone call us. So people like to talk to people. One of the things that is just fantastic for um, retailers is online chat. You know, if you want to know about a product, we know some reason we have some retailers that are clients where they will sit there in a chat session with the user and fill out the shopping cart for them. So it's almost like, you know, valet shopping whilst you're sitting there. And then, so there's all these different ways that you can use the site. And But the, the key thing is, is making sure the user is, is getting to the content as quickly as they possibly can. Sometimes a startup operator doesn't actually know what they're doing and they sometimes have to stumble into it. But there's got to be some standard types of websites available to us. Can you talk us through the, site, the sites that you work with and the things that you create? Yeah, so the industry has matured a lot over the last 10 to 15 years and certain standards have emerged. So the ones that we tend to work with a lot are the big e-commerce sites, retailing sites. So that's things like Kogan and JB Hi-Fi, all these sorts of sites. 
Uh, and they're very, very popular and they're actually the ones making the most money as well. Uh, and what's, what defines them as an e-commerce site? They're actually taking credit card payments is, I guess, the most basic definition of an e-commerce site. So the credit card payments and shipping stock. Now, you can be an e-commerce provider if you're only selling digital products. So you might just be an author selling books. Uh, a lot of bloggers will do that. And they would still be classed as an e-commerce site, even though they're a blogger. Or they might be classed as a, as a publisher with uh, an ability to transact on their site. So bloggers we work a lot with, they tend to mainly use a, a platform called WordPress. Uh, that's the most popular one for bloggers. So you've got your, your e-commerce or retailers, you've got your bloggers, which are kind of publishers, which are they are publishers. Uh, and a lot of those bloggers may also have subscription sites as well. So for instance, we have a, a course, which is a, basically a blogging site. Uh, and it's takes transactions, but it's the transactions are to uh, entry into a course to show bloggers how to do um, search engine optimization. So then you've got the branding sites. So these are sites where, uh, you know, you might just have, like I've got one coming up because I'm writing a book at the moment. So I've got a, and I'm ramping up my public speaking and all those sorts of things. So I have to set up a new site just about me, not about our business because it's a different audience completely. So, and then you've got you know, your big celebrities who have got their own branding sites as well. And uh, a lot of these celebrities, uh, you know, use that to connect with people who want to use their brand as well or just, you know, advertise where they are or where they're touring. A lot of um, celebrities and comedians use it and, and musicians use it purely to let people know where they're touring and those sorts of things. So in essence, there's all these different types of websites and for a startup listening, they should be aware of, well, which bit do I need? And therefore, when they go to a web developer, they can say, I need an e-commerce site or I need a blogging site or I need an affiliate site. It just short circuits the conversation, wouldn't you think? Yeah, definitely. Be very, very clear about exactly what you want and have a look at a lot of other websites in a similar industry and work out what are the components of those sites that are great and you like and then take that to the web developer. So that then makes sure that you are focused and you have clear goals and you know what it has to look like and do at the end of it. And it's important to do that so the whole project just doesn't blow out and you end up with something that you didn't want. I often get asked, should I build my own website or should I engage a web developer? What are some of the pros and cons of doing it yourself versus a developer? I think there's a lot of pros for doing it yourself if you want to get, you know, stick your toe in the water, get a feel for the audience out there. Um, maybe the site doesn't have a, a, a large revenue um, channel coming into it, so you can't afford to, to spend a lot on it. So you can do it yourself. The downsides of that uh, number one, it's not going to be made by a professional. So you probably will have some issues. There are platforms out there that allow you to, to build it yourself and essentially drag and drop. And they make it really easy if you're a non-developer. The problem that they have, because they have all this technology that allows you to just drag and drop and make this, this site, is they have... Um, shortcomings in other areas. Uh, for instance, Google will find some of these platforms very hard to read and therefore it's going to be harder for you to rank in the search engines. So things like that and certain things that you probably um, might need down the track but you, can't, you don't have with these self-authoring self platforms. 
but it is a good way to find out whether your idea has merit and you might want to start off on your one that you've built yourself and then down the track have plans to move uh, to one that's been done by a professional web developer. And the most popular platforms I would look at when you're talking to web developers, and, in, and even if you want to do it yourself, some people like to set up WordPress. You know, it's a fairly um, painless way to, to dip your toe in the water. And then at the other end, the really, really easy ways are things like Squarespace and Wix and, and these sorts of uh, drag and drop platforms. Let's talk about web developers and choosing a good web developer. And it's a bit like a partnership, isn't it? And you've really got to be careful as to who you choose. Can you talk us through some of the tips we should be looking at when we choose our web developer so we don't get it wrong? Yes. Ask for references, <laughs> number one. There's all sorts of web developers out there and some have got far more experience than others. Others specialise in particular platforms, like there's people that just specialise in Magento. That's all they do. They won't do anything else. So first of all, you have to understand what you are building but when and then you, you narrow down your choice. So... You know, a website can cost anywhere between. I've seen well, people are selling them on radio now for for five hundred dollars. I heard the other day, um, and you've got to ask yourself, what are you getting for that? And it's like buying a car, right? Do you want a Rolls Royce or do you want a Datsun one twenty Y? So you've got to make that decision. Understand the work that these people are doing. Ask to see examples of their work, and what. I like to do too. If I can see an example of, of, of the work, I'll ring that company and, and find out were they good? Did you enjoy it? You know, and ask the web developer, can, can I, are there any of your customers I can talk to, please? Uh, set yourself a budget though, and because that's going to dictate who you use. So the higher the budgets, it's usually the more in demand web developers, which makes sense. So they can put their prices up. And at some point, you get to paying for a lot more design and uh, user experience design and all these sorts of things. And that's when it starts to get really expensive. So your average price in Australia for, say, just a a WordPress uh, site, you're probably over $10,000 these days. But I mean, there's developers out there that will do them for 2000 3000 and they might, you know, work from home. Uh, some people have got students to build theirs, which is, you know, for their first site, that might, might be all you need. So selecting a web developer is the most important thing. Understand what you are buying. So, you know, whether you actually can just take that website and host it wherever you want. Uh, or what is that contract? Does that contract mean that I own the website? So you have to understand because some web developers don't do it that way. Uh, they'll charge you a monthly fee and they own the, the content. So you've got to understand clearly what you're getting into. But the most important thing is establish a budget and the way that you establish a budget obviously is to work out what the functionality is that you want of the site and then start to talk to those sorts of developers. How many web developers should you talk to before you think, I'm going to make a choice. Is it three? Is it four? Yeah, I'd go with three or four. You know, it's the same as getting a tradie. You know, it's, um, you know, it's reliability, who recommended them, are they going to turn up, are they going to produce, what sort of warranty do I have on this, all What's of these. a warranty? Yeah. So most web developers will warranty the site for 12 months for functionality and these sorts of things. So everything's working and, you know, nothing's broken. Uh, a lot of them will have ongoing 
maintenance contracts with you. So you have to understand whether am I allowed to upload a photo once we we enter into this contract or do I have to put everything through you and does that cost me a hundred bucks every time I want a photo uploaded or whatever. So these are the sorts of things that you have to understand. But the warranties uh, is something to really make sure that you have with your web developer and you're not just left high and dry. Uh, a lot of people will go offshore um, like to, to India and the Philippines and, and these sorts of places through um, contractors, which is fine, but you have to understand that relationship and what it is that you're getting and if there is a warranty included. Well, here's a story. I got a web developer offshore to build my site. It was only a small site and uh, I didn't pay a maintenance fee, so it just went from month to month without really having any contact. When I needed to upgrade the site, I couldn't because it hadn't been updated. Yes. And as a result, the whole site would crash the minute they started to fiddle with it. Yes. So I had to start from scratch. So it was a real yes. lesson about if you're going to hire a, de- a developer, you need to pay almost a monthly fee just to keep them updating all the plugins and everything so that when you do want to upgrade to another level, it's ready to go. Yeah, and but- it's so important for those things to be updated because a lot of them relate to security on the site. And there's so much uh, security issues around the web now, you really need to make sure it's up to date. And the other thing, if Google detects that your site isn't up to date, you're going to rank lower as well. One thing I'd like to add is you've got to like your developer. Oh, yes. Do you agree with that? Yes. Because you might have the best technical person in the world, but if you can't talk to them and you can't communicate, it's a real nightmare. So oh. I, I've learned that over the years that I actually want to be able to love the phone call coming in and say, oh, it's so-and-so, rather than, oh, God, it's him again. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and look, a lot of these people are like me. We're nerds, right? So um, you've got to make sure that you can actually communicate with these people. And we recommend different web developers because we don't build a lot of sites unless it's something for an existing client. But one of the things that before I recommend a web developer, I have to know them. Uh, you really know them. I have to have known them for several years before I'm going to recommend them uh, because I have had situations where I've recommended a web developer, say, 10 years ago, and the client rang me up saying the web developer was screaming at him down the phone. So you've just like like anything, you have to like that web developer and connect with them. Um uh, are they, is, is being local important? Is being, meeting them face-to-face, is that important to you? These are all considerations. What happens when you've been given something back from the web developer? Maybe it's the first design or maybe it's just gone live or maybe just looking to do an update. But what they give you back is not what you're expecting. And you don't really have the vocabulary to explain to them what's wrong with it because you don't know what you don't know. Any thoughts on how we can communicate or the questions we can ask that help us have these tough conversations? Yes. I would always take it back to is what do you want this to do? Because some customers or some website owners may think that they want their website to look a different way to what the web developer has done it, but the web developer has done it because you need this sort of functionality or you want to sell things through it. And one example of that is uh, a lot of websites, you'll see they have these great big, what we call slideshows at the top of the site, where it's a big, big image and one moves across and then another one moves across. They're horrible for users. Users hate them. The data shows that it decreases conversions by, you know, 30% by having these sliders on top of your website, which is if you're an e-commerce site, that's, that's death. So... We, you hear some clients say, oh, no, I want the big slider. I think they look great. And the web developer saying, well, that's going to kill transactions. So there's these sorts of discussions you have to have. You have to understand 
what it is that you've asked that web developer to do and also understand that most web developers are not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So if they've presented you with one design and you said, no, I hate a lot of it, no, give me something else, that's not going to work because they've already done all that work. So usually they'll follow a process called um, iterative prototyping, which means they build on each design after feedback from you and most of them will structure their costs in a way that reflects that and you've got to make sure that you ask that question up front before going in too so say to them what happens if you send me back a design and, and I hate it um, understand what, what happens in that in that process so it's just basic communication yes. skills yes. but it does get lost I think sometimes because we just assume they're going to do it perfectly yeah I know I know and it's like you know it's a bit like um you know, when you build a house, you understand what it's going to look like because you've seen the plans, uh, you've maybe walked through a display home, all of these sorts of things. That's why it's been really important to have it concrete in your own mind what you want that website to look like so you can communicate that clearly and have any examples of that to show the web developer is, is a really good idea. The other thing to mention is often the websites you're looking at have a little summary down the bottom of who the web developer is. There's often a little link, isn't there? Correct. So that's a good way to find who's actually built that website is just have a bit of a search and it should generally mention that web developer. Definitely. Some people say, oh, I've got Facebook or I've got Instagram. I don't really need a website. And mm. that might be true. Mm-hmm. What, under what circumstances would we not need a website? Oh, look, lots of people transact online without websites through, you know, eBay, right? So it's been around for a long time. And these sorts of things for most of the businesses that are playing in them are called marketplaces. That's sort of the broad overarching term. So eBay would be a marketplace. Amazon would be a marketplace. So there are a lot of retailers that just exist purely on eBay and uh, Amazon. The point at which they decide to get a website is because they're sick of paying fees to eBay and Amazon and they want a bigger margin. So that tends to be, uh, for, for a lot of retailers anyway, the, the point where they say, we need a website. But if the, the main danger that you have with these platforms, including Facebook, uh, if you're transacting on there as well, is that if they change the rules... It changes everything for you. You, you'll rent. You'll you'll basically have a rented house now, and you can't. You don't want to paint that rented house. So you know what are you going to put your money into longer term if they change the rules on you? So there there is a saying out there that's been around for a while, which is share the message and own the destination. So use all those other platforms like Facebook and everything else to share that message, but bring them back to your website. I call that the mothership. Yes, yes. Bring it back to very, the mothership yeah, and good. have all the little satellites off that yes. but come back to the mothership. And the good example I remember is a young woman who was an Instagram queen, yeah. tens and hundreds of thousands of users, and she inadvertently broke the rules without even realising it. Yes. She posted something. She woke up one morning and it was gone. Oh. The entire account was deleted with no recourse. Oh, wow. Her whole business is gone. And oh, she was wow. all of 16 years old. Oh, Poor thing. God. I'm Bernadette Schwert, and this is How to Build an Online Business. More after the break. In terms of understanding your user and creating a user experience that's really pleasurable and it it gets the outcome, it pays to know who's actually using it. So we often call those people customers or target markets, segments, customer avatars or Mm -hmm. profiles. 
In your business, can you talk us through how you, firstly, what is a customer avatar and how you use them? Yeah, well, in our business, we call them buyer personas or customer avatars, but essentially it is the essence of a typical customer who we actually give a name to. So a lot of people recommend that. And it's just really helpful to understand and think about your typical customer. So for ours, it's Ashley. Now, Ashley could be male or female, and they're typically an entrepreneur in their 40s, might be in a partnership in in that entrepreneurial venture, Uh, primary school age kids, state school. Uh, We also have Noah. Noah's a chief marketing officer. Uh, He has his kids in private school, teenage kids. He's probably in his 50s. So all of these things help you understand what you what to produce for these people. So we can say in our business with a piece of content, would Ashley read this? Would Noah read this? Who am I writing this for? And it's just really helpful then to configure the content on your site. So it's actually talking to those people, but also understand where they are. Where do they hang out online? Uh, they're probably not, Ashley and Noah, surprise, surprise, are not on Snapchat. They're on LinkedIn, right? So we hang out on LinkedIn and share our content on LinkedIn. User experience or UX as the, mm. the tech people call it, what is it? And yeah. how do we create a user experience that's pleasant? Uh, everyone's got one. Everyone's got a user experience. Whether it's good or not, that's it doesn't right. matter. Yeah, that's it. You just want to have the best one, right? So uh, the user experience is the key, right? If you get that wrong then basically you've stuffed everything up. So the user experience is going to influence how much traffic Google will send you. If you have a bad user experience, like uh, the user experience could mean that is is how fast is the site? Uh, how easy is it to navigate? How easy is it to find things? All of these things are about the user experience. So if you have a really, really slow site, that's a bad user experience. We all hate slow sites. And with 70% of the world's mobile users at any one time being on 3G, you want to have a fast site on mobile too. Because if you've tried to load a a big site on a mobile over 3G, it's like watching a sloth pull down a window blind, right? It's it's horrible. It's a very evocative image there, Yes, well, it is. (laughs) And so people leave your site, right? So if it's, if it's slow, that's a bad user experience. And we know if it takes longer than three seconds to load, people aren't going to hang around. They're gone. So you can lose 60% of your traffic that way. Uh, the other things with user experience are, you know, making it difficult to find things on the site. And especially for mobile users, you might have to keep thumb scrolling forever to find, to, until you find the thing that you're looking for. Um User experience also starts in the search results as well. So, and I'll give you for instance of that. If your pages, if your web pages aren't configured properly with the right um, uh, things edited on them, we call them title tags essentially, uh, and your description tags, that's not going to display well in the search results. So when people are looking at those search results, they're not going to readily understand what that result is about. So they're going to be less likely to click on it. Uh, so you've got to make sure that you've been really, really clear. You, you, you're doing uh, all the right things for security. So make sure if you're, you're an e-commerce site, you're taking credit cards, make sure the users understand that this is a highly secure site. So be very visual with all your security icons and all those sorts of things. This is all user experience. And and certainly if you're a retailer, it goes further, a bit further than that as well, in that you better 
deliver when you say you're going to deliver. Uh, you know, that's part of the user experience as well. So it's so important and all the things that we talk about with uh, technical search engine optimization basically come down to user experience. So they can be just things like the site's full of errors and you didn't know, like broken links and users are going around to the site clicking on broken links. That's a terrible user experience. And it's going to mean that people transact less on your site and it means that search engines like Google will not rank you high. Well, I think the broken links is a good example because if you do come across one, it has the halo effect. We think, well, this is broken. Mm. What else is broken? Yeah. And you lose trust pretty quickly. You do. And I, I, I think when you see things that uh, a website looks like a virtual ghost town, like last updated, you know, 2015, you think, oh, God, there's no one here. All of those things, it just says, I don't trust this site. And that's the biggest thing. And we're out of there. Let's talk about user testing because you touched on heat mapping a mm. little bit earlier. Mm. Uh, talk us through exactly how that user testing works. For example, you sit someone in front of the computer and it's filmed them using the website. Let's just talk us through that. Yeah, it's fascinating, this stuff. I love watching it. And nerd. And the the reason is, is that it, it gives you insights that you you're not going to be aware of unless you have a look at this sort of stuff. So the, the main one that we use is called Hotjar. And basically what we do with that, we just put a little bit of code on every page or the pages that we're measuring. Uh, and then we go back into the Hotjar website and it gives overlays um, sort of hotspots where people are clicking on the site. But then there's another level where it actually will show a video of the mouse pointer going around and moving around and people trying to click on things that don't work. And it will give you also... Uh, the mobile experience as well, which is fascinating. And all of a sudden you start to see it's like, ah, oh, that's where they're all falling out. That's why they're not transacting. That button doesn't work. I haven't got the egg to cart. They're all of these sorts of things that you're just not going to see. Uh, and you get a great insights. The other ones are probably Crazy Egg is another popular one. But you can also think, use things like Google Optimize, which will test different versions of a page to see which one works better for the user and automatically, you know, just say this is the one that most people like. So you've got to constantly do these things to make sure that you're, you're getting the, the best experience for that user. I remember talking to Jane Liu, who's the founder yep. of Shopo, mm -hmm. you know, a very successful fashion yep. site. And Jane told me about her user testing experience when she had no money. Mm. So, you know, you've got to pay to use these yes. pieces of software. But she said, well, what I did was I just sat down somewhere in front of my website. I stood behind them and I said, right, now buy a pair of black boots. And she watched them go through all the site trying to work out where were they yeah. going. What was intuitive for her was not intuitive for this person. Yeah. And she learned a lot just by watching. So I thought I'd share that because that's if people good. think I, mean, I, don't, I can't afford those software packages, it's just a, a, a hack you know, to do it yes. yourself. Yeah, and I say, I say a similar thing when people are, are doing their keyword research to find out what you know, keywords they should buy for ads or what they should try to rank for in Google. I say to them, just say to your friends and family, if you are looking for a product or service like mine, what would you type into Google? But just don't use any of the keywords. You know, and you'll be surprised what comes back and it may not be what you think. And the same thing is with the user experience as well. A little bit of a nitty-gritty question, Jim, about the URL or the domain name for mm -hmm. your business. I often mm -hmm. get asked, what should I choose? How do I know which is the right name to pick? Mm -hmm. You can go to GoDaddy or Crazy Domains and pick it, and there's thousands to choose from. How do I 
pick the right name for my business? I have a couple of rules. I try to keep it as short as possibly can because you just don't want people typing in a lot of characters and there's less chances for mistake and them getting it wrong. But try to go with something that is going to be a long-term branding for your business and that's the key criteria. I try to keep it short, but if you can't keep it short because of your existing brand, then don't. Just stick to the brand. A lot of people will go out and buy what we call exact match domains, which are things like you know, plumbersydney.com.au or stuff like that. That's all right for a certain project, but if that's not your brand, then why are you associating your web address with that? So try to make your web address, your domain name on topic. A lot of people ask about, oh, should I go for a .melbourne, .sydney? Some, these are called the new top-level domains. There's also like .travel now and all these other things. What studies have shown with those sorts of domains, though, is that people don't trust them yet because they're so new and they don't click on them as much, so they don't understand. So people trust your standards, so your .com.au's, your uh, .coms, and, you know, if you're in the New Zealand, .co.nz. So I like to go with one that people recognise easily, and that reflects your business and your brand. So for those thinking, I want to be ahead of the curve and do the dot Melbournes and the dot Sydneys or the dot travel, should they be investing in that or should they stick with what we already know? I would, well, my advice to clients so far has been stick with what you already know because you can end up with a large portfolio of domain names but not use any of them and you're just paying registration fees year after year. So as far as Google's concerned, uh, you only have one one domain name, one web address. So having multiple ones isn't going to help you. What about using Google Trends, Jim, to decipher what words are trending uh, versus words that are on the slide when we're choosing a URL and those very important words we put inside the URL? Mm. I love Google Trends. Look, it's a free tool and it basically tells you what people are typing into Google, even down to the last hour. In fact, I've used it and I've gone back over the data and I've Google Trends has predicted the US president since 2004, uh, simply via, via search volumes. Like on the day of the last election, uh, Trump had about 10 times the search volume to Clinton. And and when that happens, and I've seen it on previous elections, that's the one that wins on the day. Uh, I haven't seen it happen for other elections, but certainly the US, it works. So you can look at data over time down to the, the town that you're in, down to, and in some bigger country towns, you can get data down to that level as well. And you can see seasonality over time as well. So you can find out whether people are only typing this word in at a certain time of the year. And then you can see other related phrases that they might also be typing in, and it might give you some other ideas as well. So yeah, I love Google Trends and I spend a lot of time in it. One example I found helpful was I'm in the meditation sector. You know, I mm -hmm. teach meditation as a sideline. And I wanted to know, is meditation the word that people are looking for or is it mindfulness? Uh, yes. And when I looked, it's way in the mindfulness section. Wow. Yeah, so if you're choosing a word for your URL in that sector, you may not use meditation, but yes. mindfulness, because that's trending up, yeah, yeah, meditation yeah. trending down. So little things like that, I yeah. think, can be quite helpful about where's this word going. Yeah, and it also helps you understand what content you should be publishing as well. Like the word how, if you look at the word how in uh, Google Trends, it's been trending upwards for the last 10 years. So more people are asking questions of Google now where they never used to. One last tool that you love that you think people listening might benefit from? 
Uh, every website owner should have Google Search Console. Every website owner. It's a free tool and a lot of website owners don't even know it exists, but it will tell you everything that Google knows about your site. So there's another tool out there called Google Analytics, which just tells you the stats and all that sort of stuff about people coming to your site. Google Search Console tells you what the Google bot experiences, so what the Google robot, when it comes out and looks at your site, all the problems it finds. So it will tell you how slow your site is. It will tell you where all the errors are, where all the problems are. It will tell you what people are typing into Google to find you and how many of those maybe type a phrase into Google and your site appears, but they don't click. So you can get some insights into the potential opportunities uh, that your site might have that you will not get anywhere else except Google Search Console. And it's free. And it's free. Thank you, Google. Yes. So if you need to find a good web developer, remember, it's like a relationship. Easy to get into, harder to get out of. Choose wisely. How to Build an Online Business was produced by Dave Swalensky. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Recorded in the Podcast One Studios, Australia. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app or look us up on Apple Podcasts.